0: It's not a stretch of the imagination in any form for us to say that we live in a violent world. The FBI statistics tell us that in 2006 there were more than 1.4 million violent crimes committed in this country. There were 17,000 murders committed in this country in 2006. That's a murder every 30.9 minutes. And that means that in the time we spend together here this morning, two people will lose their lives in a violent death. We live in a world of violence. I opened up my web browser the other day and uh, just happened to notice on this news website some of the headlines that were listed there and there were probably 10 of the, 10 headlines or so and half of them five of them stated these words things like boy talked me out of killing him gunman barricades himself in building two killed entire store shooting private security convoy kills two mom blames cops for toddler's death the violence is such a common solution people think to the problems that they face. I mean and even even in in things that we go, what in the world was going on there? You know, you read the story a week or so ago of the in the Walmart of the, the Pepsi delivery man and the coke delivery man getting into a fist fight. I mean it's craziness. But there's something in, in our culture that says, if you have a problem, violence is one of your best options. And we look at that and and we're astounded. We ought not to be too surprised by that, though, because that's been the mindset of people from all the way back to the time of Cain and Abel. And these two brothers, faced with a conflict... And one of them says, my best solution to this problem is to take the life of my brother. It seems almost incomprehensible to us. And yet, the violence and, and even the murder, the killing of people, it touches us. And we may not be connected to it but we know about it, we read about it, and it can't help but affect us. And we scratch our heads and think, how could people do that? Despite the fact that that we live in this violent culture, I would guess that because of the community in which we live, most of us are probably thinking as we come to church, whether you knew what the subject matter was or not, or if you opened the bulletin and saw what we were doing today, probably thought to yourself, all right, of all the Ten Commandments, this is the one I don't need to worry about. I can take five today. I can sit back. I I, I rarely contemplate murdering someone, every so often. Uh, but we all know, we know in our spirits that we wouldn't do it. And there's something within us that says, well, you know, do not commit murder. Okay, I'm good with that one. You know, some of the other ones I, I wrestle with, but that one, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm pretty safe. But at just the moment that we think we're safe, we're excluded, It's the moment we come face to face with the Word of God That asks from us something deeper than what we might just see on the surface. The Word of God is continually challenging us to think more deeply than the surface, to allow God to work in our hearts in deeper ways than just what's on the surface. And I believe that as we come to this commandment, a commandment that might seem to us about other people, I have no doubt in my mind, it is a commandment that speaks directly to you as it does to me. This commandment really is is fairly simple. He simply says, God simply says to us, do not murder. This command is simple, but honestly the interpretation is a bit complex. There's only two Hebrew words here, and if basically they I mean no killing. No murder. That's one of the one of the complexities of this of this commandment is that scholars disagree. Whether the word means murder or kill. And the implications of that are different. Because if you say it's do not murder, then you're simply limiting it to what we might call premeditated intentional action against another person to take their life. There's some basis for that in the scriptures. You know, there are there are places where God where God gives people a break, where he doesn't condemn them for certain circumstances that involve the loss of someone's life. Self-defense is not condemned. Accidental death is not condemned. In fact, God sets up the cities of refuge around Israel so that if someone accidentally murders someone, they can flee to these cities and they're safe from the from the uh, vengeance of that person's family. Military action is excluded from what we might consider murder. And so there is is certainly a thought in, in some scholars' minds that this is simply about murder. It's about that intentional, premeditated, some might say unprovoked, killing of another person. It, it's talking about the kind of, of murder that we often think of that's done to cover up something we did wrong. Some 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 darkness in our lives that we wouldn't want anyone to know about. And since that person does, we have to eliminate them. It's murder that, that takes place because some reason, ending this person's life will help us to hang on to wealth or power or to gain it if we don't have it. Or it's the kind of action that may take place when we feel scorned or spurned and and in a moment of anger and passion strike out at another person. So that's one way of looking at this word. And all of that is is condemned, and I doubt if if we would have much of an argument with that. Our society doesn't really have much of an argument with that. But there is another side of this, another meaning to the word that again is there's a lot of division about it that it means do not kill. And it's not limited to murder. But it's talking about taking the taking of a human life for any reason. And whether we are talking about murder or or killing, I think the the underlying point that God is trying to make to for us and for his people through the centuries is that we ought to be people who care deeply about human life life that even if even if someone takes the life of another person in a way that that we say that's that's acceptable they had to do it it was self defense or it was an accident that even in those moments our hearts are deeply grieved that a human heart no longer beats that human lungs no longer breathe I think if we, if we see this as a, as a command about how we view life, then it certainly brings into the argument and into the picture a discussion about some of the ethical and moral issues with which the church has struggled through the centuries. There's issues, issues of abortion and war and capital punishment among other things. And I think that in each of those circumstances, if we are people who are for life, then our core belief is that those things are wrong and they're unacceptable to God. And yet we recognize that there are moments when God in His grace gives us exceptions. The underlying mindset we have is that we avoid those things at all cost. And then with that mindset recognize that God does provide us some exceptions. I think that we see this with all of the issues. I think as, as people of God we need to take a strong stand against abortion and yet recognize that there are though few, there are some instances when it may be the right choice I think we need to take a stand to be against against war that it ought to be the exception ought to be only in defense only in in protection but too often, that mindset easily slides into aggression. I mean, most of the wars that have been fought through the centuries, most of the times countries have been involved in them, sometimes it's about protection, but often it's about aggression. And there is even within us, in our nationalistic spirit, to to begin to feel a certain level of hey, we need to go get them. Rather than it ought to grieve us that that is ever an option that we need to take. And in capital punishments. Even people who who commit inhumane acts against other people, does that justify doing inhumane things to them? you know, I'm not going to solve all the problems for us today, but I think we need to think seriously about these issues. You know, what I find interesting is that is that the people who tend to make the decisions about some of these things, and particularly about war and about capital punishment, are typically not the people who have to carry out those things. I wonder if it would change how we view them if we were the ones carrying them out, Stuart Briscoe was telling about a, a woman he knew who, who was visiting a, prim, a prison, I believe it was in North Carolina, and became friends with one of the one of the inmates on death row. This inmate, an and an older woman by that time, was was scheduled to be executed. Every appeal had been made, but to, to no avail. As the time was drawing near, this, this woman who went to visit her could sense her apprehension, as you can well imagine. And she said to her, Would it help you at all if I, if I came with you that day? Came to your execution. She said, That would be great. This woman who, who was to be executed through, through a series of circumstances had become a Christian. And was struggling with this. The day of the execution, this this woman came to be with her and was there as the event took place. Briscoe said about two weeks later, this woman called him and said, I need your help. I'm a wreck. I can't sleep. I can't think straight. Every time I close my eyes, the scene of that just keeps coming back to me over and over and over again. I don't know what I'm going to do. I need you to help me. And he says, I, I wonder if it would change our perspective about life and about these issues if if we were there. You talk to anyone who has been involved in in the combat of war and they will tell you what a terrible thing it is. I remember having a conversation with a gentleman years ago who had been in World War II and 40, 50 years later he couldn't talk about it. He had nightmares every night about what he had seen and experienced. It wasn't the same and it isn't the same for those of us who are standing back. talk about police officers who have to discharge their guns in the line of duty and, and in a moment when, when someone's life is taken, and even though they're exonerated and, and it's clear that they had to do what they did, they live with a tremendous amount of guilt, tremendous psychological struggle. The police force has discovered how difficult it is and as soon as they discharge their gun when the event's over they are in counseling. And yes, there are exceptions. I think if we're going to be people who are about life we need to be people who are about life. Whatever form it comes. It's always intrigued me that that it seems like the, that the line is drawn that, that for some people the, the most important thing are, are the unborn, and they seem to neglect those who are born. And others feel so strongly about people who are born and neglect the unborn. And as Christians, we ought to be concerned about both. We ought to be concerned about life. And it ought to grieve us when people die. It ought to grieve us, and we ought to think of this with restraint and as a last resort till we ever have to practice any of these things to take another human life. God says, do not murder. Love, care about life. But you know, Jesus continues to to move us beyond even just how we think about things. Jesus, I think, knows that most of us are probably not going to be probably not going to be tempted to, to take someone's life from them. But that doesn't mean he doesn't have a word for us. Because Jesus is concerned not just about our actions. He's concerned about our attitudes and our thoughts and how we treat one another. And so we come to Matthew's gospel. Jesus says, You've heard it was said that people long ago do not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Anyone who's active on things for us. No longer are we just thinking about ideas and theories and ethics. Now we're thinking about how we live with one another. And if we're about life, then we care about how we treat one another. That means it's important that we consider what we say to one another. Our words are important. Our words have the ability to heal or to destroy. Our words have the ability to build up or to tear down. And we may never, we may never assassinate someone with a gun or a knife, but we might assassinate someone with our words. Our words... Are powerful. And we need to know the power that our words have. We hurt one another with our words, with gossip, with backbiting. We give tongue lashings to people. I mean, I know people who are alive but are dead inside because of words that have been spoken to them by a parent or a spouse. Or a teacher or a coach or an employee or a friend. Our words are dangerous. You know, we, we often say, you know we say as children, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a lie. It's a lie. I think actually, we're probably, we can probably handle the sticks and stones better than the words because they penetrate into us and they eat away at us and they destroy us. And as people of God, if we care about one another, if we care about life, we need to care about our words, what we say. But of course, underneath those words and underneath the actions, our attitudes, what we think, and Jesus says to us that what you think eventually comes out of your mouth or your actions. But it starts in your mind and in your heart. Jesus says, "Out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false testimony and slander. This stuff is in our hearts, and that's what makes it come out when we deal with other people. And if we allow hatred and bitterness to take root in us, it will eventually come out. It'll come out in our words. It will come out in acts of vengeance. It'll come out in our bitter spirit. Now it's hard for us because you know when people hurt us, the natural thing is to want to strike back and all around us that's what we see I I saw an interview this week uh, Donald Trump has written a new book about being a leader in business and one of the one of the things that was asked of him is that he says in the book that if someone hurts you you hurt them back and he said that's exactly right you know it's as though people the interviewer was saying that was a mistake no it was a mistake he said that's what you do you can't, let people, you can't let people walk over you. You can't let people take advantage of you. If they hurt you, you hurt them back. And the more they hurt you, the more you hurt them. That's how you become successful. That's how you rise to leadership. And we listen to that and we say, wow, that's bad. I know I was thinking, I was watching this going, man, I can't believe he's saying that. And then I thought about stuff in my own heart. I read about a pastor who, who his, uh, someone in the church had deeply offended him, and, and he was struggling to know what to do and wrestling with it, and it was so painful. And he said, you know, he, he fantasized about, about calling the IRS because he knew about some tax improprieties in these people's lives. He said, I thought about, you know, becoming a nocturnal nuisance, driving by their house late at night and turning a radio up and honking my horn and shining the high beams into their windows. He was telling a friend about this. The friend said, you'd really do that? And he said, of course I would. I'm a human being. And stuff gets into my heart. And it does. But Jesus says, it's such a dangerous way to live and to think. Because what starts as... A little thing grows into a bigger thing and a bigger thing and a bigger thing until it eats us alive. And that's why he says, you need to get rid of that. He says, if you're at the altar and you're at church in worship and all of a sudden you remember there's a problem, you go take care of it. Don't let it fester. Don't let it grow. Keep short accounts with people. It always has intrigued me that Jesus says, if you're in church and you remember that someone else has something against you, not that you have something against someone else, but that you remember they have bad feelings toward you, go take care of it. And that means we have to, we have to initiate Reconciliation. We need to take the first step toward making things right with people. Even if we didn't start it. If we know about it, we're responsible for it. And if we know about it and we don't do anything about it, it will become a problem for us. Because there is something wrong between us and another person. And the answer to, to the difficulties that we have with other people and the, and the ugliness in our hearts is to commit ourselves to this kind of reconciliation. To commit ourselves to build, to build bridges instead of walls. To commit ourselves to, to work out our problems instead of ignoring them to care enough about people that we do everything in our power to bring resolution to the difficulties that arise from hurting each other. Now, David Seaman says it's interesting that you look at the Gospels and you see that when when people hurt Jesus, his response is to see that, see those people, As people who just need his mercy and grace, when people hurt us, our natural response is to fight back, to put up walls and barriers and to turn on them. And somehow, if we are people who care about life, then we care about relationships. And if we care about relationships, we keep short accounts. When we know there's a problem, we work toward reconciliation. We humble ourselves. We sacrifice. We do what we can to bring about resolution. And we do all of this. We care about life. We care about relationships. We care about other people because God does. Because every single person in this world has been created in the image of God. That's why we care about life. That's why we care about relationships. Because every person is created in the image of God. And you know what happens? We, ju- we can justify hurting other people. We can justify war and all the other things that we do when we dehumanize people. I mean, that's what they did with slavery. You know, people just said, well, they're not, really, they're not fully human beings, so we can treat them however we want to. I remember as a child... Uh, during the uh, the sixties, particularly, and into the seventies, and the Cold War, you know, there was there was a certain sense where where the people who lived in the Soviet Union weren't quite as human as we were, and there was just there was this blanket mindset about them that they weren't quite they weren't quite like us, and when you feel that way, it allows you to to treat them poorly and to see them as the enemy and to, and to justify whatever you do. And I suspect that there's something of that in the back of our minds about the issues that we have with terrorists and maybe specifically with Arabs and Muslims. But we're wrong. Because every person is created in the image of God. And God loves every single person just as much as he loves you and me. He cares about them just as much as he cares about you and me. And so he says, I want you to be people who care about them like that too. Or for life, because God has created every single person in His image. And how can we call anything that God has created unlovely? Perhaps the best place for us to start. is maybe not to think about loving the world. Maybe the best place for us to start is to simply think about loving each other. And I know you may say, well, we're supposed to love the whole world. Well, of course we are. But Jesus says that people will know we are his disciples if we love one another. And there's something about loving one another living in a spirit of reconciliation with one another caring about one another that people notice and they're drawn to it we want to be people who care about life in all of its forms we want to be people who who are who are rid of of anger and Bitterness and hate. We want to be people whose words heal rather than tear down. We want to be people known for a spirit of reconciliation. All of that because because God has made us in his image. And he's made everyone in his image. Remember the prayer of of St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O oh, Divine Master, grant that I might not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. May God give us grace to die to ourselves that we might be people who live for Him and for one another. Gracious Father, we want to be people Care about life. Forgive us when we don't. Give us courage and grace to see one another as you do. Through Christ Jesus. Amen.